You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to episode number 65 of Living the Dream with Rory O'Malley. Audition side job, swimming upstream. Believe it or not, you're living the dream. Hey there, dreamers. Rory here, your host for Living the Dream. It's a very special episode of Living the Dream because we are remembering Craig Zaden, a producer, an extraordinary person, um, a man who I recently got to know this summer when he reached out to me after seeing my performance in Hamilton and, and wanted to get together to tell me that I did a great job. And we had a great dinner. I asked him to be on the podcast just, man, it was like six weeks ago, seven weeks ago. And sadly, we lost him after complications with shoulder surgery. I don't know if everyone listening to this knows that, but uh, I am in shock about it, as so many people in the entertainment industry are. This is a man who was full of life, vigor, and enthusiasm for what was ahead. He had no signs of slowing down. And you all could tell in our conversation that he was ready to go with the next project, even after having so many accomplishments in his career. I thought that the most appropriate thing would be to replay the episode and conversation with him. And I could read to you some of the remembrances that have been put out online by, by folks who knew him better and worked with him and loved him. Uh, my condolences go out to his family, to his producing partners and everyone who knew him so well, especially Neil Marin, and uh, everyone whose lives he changed by working with him or through the wonderful art that he created and all the dreams that he made possible and sparked in so many people across the world because his stories made people want to be storytellers themselves, just like him. Um, Barbara Streisand said, I am shocked and saddened to hear of Craig Zaden's passing. We collaborated on several projects and he was always a joy to work with. His kindness and his creativity will surely be missed. Lin-Manuel Miranda Craig Zaden, together with Neil Marin, made a career and a life of bringing musical theater into homes and to people everywhere. How do you begin to express gratitude for such a wondrous thing? Hugh Jackman, I'm shocked and saddened to hear of Craig Zaden's passing. He was a tireless supporter of so many, including myself. He brought joy to countless people. 
he will be incredibly missed, sending love and thoughts to his family and friends. There are so many more of those that I could go on and and read, and I encourage you to go online and see so many of the memories that have been posted, um, including Bob Greenblatt, the head of NBC's article in The Hollywood Reporter, which is really excellent, and what Neil Marin has said about the passing of his longtime producing partner. Um, life is so short and precious, and we're so lucky to get to do what we do, to be a part of this industry. And that that is something that we should celebrate every day. And it's certainly something that Craig celebrated every day. To his last moment, he was creating and working and loving what he did. So please enjoy my beautiful conversation with the great Craig Zayden. Hi, Craig. Hi. How are you? I'm really good because I'm in a beautiful home. Uh, Whose house is it? I, I don't know. Some some uh, some famous producer. Well, <laughs> have you ever heard of Rudy Valley? He was, yeah. He was a big movie star of sure. the 20s and 30s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He built this house. What? Yeah. And uh, it's been passed on through the years. And the only thing that I know for sure is that everything in it the tile, the wood, the uh, all the construction is original. It's been fixed, but it's not been changed. Right. So what you see is what, what it looked like it's, in 1925. It's in such wonderful condition. It's kind of hard to believe that other than the fact that it looks so authentic and, and, and beautiful. And it's my favorite thing in Los Angeles is to see Hollywood history in homes and in this neighborhood and in just being in Hollywood because it's not like there's hundreds and hundreds of years of history. There's Hollywood history in Los Angeles. Well, then we'll do one story about yeah. the house. Yes, please. When you come in the entrance, uh, there's like a, a cubicle, which I always thought was for a plant. Right. And I have a plant in there because yeah. that's what I thought it was meant for. Uh-huh. I spoke to a, a, an historian who told me that Rudy Valley built it. And was the cheapest man in Hollywood. He was famous for being cheap. And he had a phone booth installed in the cubicle. So when he had guests and they said, could I use the phone? He said, yes, it's in the hall. And they'd go there. And if they didn't have any loose change, they couldn't make a call. Oh, my God. That's hilarious. Isn't that that funny? Yeah. So his guests. I'm a little better. I supply change. (laughs) So if you have if you have like a five or ten dollar bill, I'll give you change. I don't have more than ten dollars in the house, right? So I, I don't go beyond that, but, right? You know, but I but I will supply change. That's hilarious. Yeah, that was fabulous. I mean, and you and you showed me a picture on your wall. What when was that picture taken that you can see the house? It was when the house was built. So it was around wow. around nineteen twenty five. It's incredible, and you you don't see all the other homes that are around you. Because no, they're, they're, there were no other homes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's unbelievable. Great to not have neighbors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My, I hope my neighbors don't listen to this cat yeah, yeah, podcast, yeah. but yeah. yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's such, there's so much wonderful history in Los Angeles and all has to do with yes. the industry, with the business. Um, so I, I haven't talked to a lot of producers on the podcast and certainly not 
Um, they're boring. They, well, that's not like, like <laughs> people who are people who are listening to this are going to say, "Yeah, they sure are." No, they are not. Why they are you are, talking to him? I, I guarantee you that this will be listened to very carefully by a lot of actors, especially. I started though with an inferiority complex because, mm-hmm. um, yes, um, this is uh, it's it's half personal and it's half psychological right. and it's half um, medical and, and and everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody uh, famous in the industry when I started out said, you know, have you ever been in therapy? And I said, no. And they said, well, you should, because it will help you figure out how to right. deal with ego, uh, explosive people who, you know, really want everything their own way. Yeah. So I found a therapist. I went to my first therapy session and it was this woman who shall remain nameless and um, in my first session, five minutes into the session, she fell asleep. <laughs> and <laughs> ten minutes into the session, she started snoring. And I found out later she had narcolepsy. Oh. So I picked the one shrink <laughs> that had narcolepsy. But I developed, so she helped me develop an inferiority complex. Yeah, that's got to give and all think of her that I was boring. That's why this circles back to the beginning of this, right. where I told you that producers are boring. But maybe they're not. Maybe, <laughs> I, just, maybe it's just me. I don't know about all producers, but you are definitely not boring. <laughs> I, I, we had lunch uh, a few weeks ago, and I just couldn't stop thinking about how I had to get some of your stories on this podcast and your experience. And, and what I would like to start with is... Can you explain to me what a producer does? I know that sounds like very basic. And of course, I've worked with many different kinds of producers. But honestly, I want to hear what you think right. and what you say a producer does. Because a producer wears so many different hats. And it's really up to interpretation of that person, I feel like. So what is it that you do? Well, it's funny because... Uh, every week of my life, my mother called me and said, what do you do? <laughs> and I'd explain it for an hour. And then the next week she'd call and say, I meant to ask you, what do you do? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that no matter if I explain it right now, no one will still understand what right. I do. I mean, basically, a producer is in charge of everything. So a director's in charge of directing and a writer's in charge of writing and the actor's in charge of acting and producer's in charge of everything. And if it's a success, you don't get credit for it. And if it's a failure, you get blamed for it. Right. So it's, it's sort of the most difficult job that I have found, especially if you're producing the Oscars. Because then you, on a magnitude of an earthquake, you know, mm-hmm. you basically uh, really get blamed for everything. Right. You're under a microscope. Under a mi- microscope. And they don't like anything that you've done or chosen <laughs> to do. And everything that you do do, they like, you know, how could you? Right. You know, it's, it's just sort of like... You have a lot of cooks in the kitchen when yeah. it comes to the Oscars and yeah. the tradition of it and, and a lot of people to please. I can only imagine how much pressure that is to walk into it. However, you did it three years in a row with your yeah. producing partner, first, Neil Marin. Yeah, first time um, in 16 years that a producer... Neil and I uh, was asked to do it three years in a row. Right. And um, after you do it three years in a row, you understand why nobody does it three right. years in a row. Oh, it, it takes up every bit of your energy in life, I'm sure, for that entire year. Absolutely. But I'll go back to the original question. What, what does a producer do? 
My first movie that I produced was a little baby movie that cost $8 million to make called Footloose. <laughs> and uh, Footloose was where I learned everything I would need to know in the future. And uh, during Footloose, I came to the conclusion that is it? Is it? Uh, no, that's my dog fine. Milo. It's, we love dogs. Okay, that's Milo. If you hear, if you hear a sound of a dog like <laughs> licking his paws, that's Milo. That's right. Um, so anyway, there I am in Provo, Utah, producing Footloose, and and I discover that the most naive thing you could do is think that you're going to have a good day hmm. as a producer. You're not going to have a good day, and the best, most healthy outlook is that you're a fireman. And you carry with you all day long a fire extinguisher. And there are days where you don't use it. And there are days that when a brush fire starts, you're there to put it out. And if you realize that there's not a day that you won't be carrying that fire extinguisher around with you, then you're okay. Right. If you think that there are going to be good days and bad days, you're going to be sorely disappointed in the job. Wow. That's okay, so, you, you, so I didn't answer the question. <laughs> so it mostly okay, so. has to do with fire. <laughs> it has to do with fire. No, no but it, it you really to... do have to be able to think on your feet and work with people in a way that is very, very specific to... Uh, you have to be good at numbers, budgets, technical sides of the business, and also be extremely good at working with people. A people well, person. it goes back to the psychology part of it. Yeah, um, I... F- this is this is what the job is, and and the interesting thing, it's a different job in the theater yeah. than it is in television, and it's a different job in feature films than it is in the theater and television, right. and they're all completely different functions, and the, even the titles are different. Hmm. Like for instance, uh, the big boss in television is the executive producer. Right. The big boss in a feature film is the producer. Hmm. not the executive producer. And on Broadway, you're in a box with 17,000 other names. Yeah. uh, Because to me, the theater billing block is so confusing to me. Because if you write a a check for $25, you have the same billing as I do. And I may have spent five, ten years working on the show, but you get the same billing as I do, but you you wrote a check for $10. I mean, so... It's, it's, it's different with everything. So the, the job, though, is starting at the very beginning, you're in charge of uh, figuring out the project you want to do. Mm-hmm. You have to get the rights to it. You have to develop it with the writer. You have to pick a writer. You have to develop it. You have to then get it financed. Then after you get it financed, you've got to pick all the team. The actors, you've got to pick the set designer, the costume designer, um, the location, where you're going to shoot it. Are you going to shoot it in Toronto? Are you going to shoot it in Georgia? Are you going to shoot it in New York? Are you going to shoot it in L.A.? So you have all of that. Yeah. Um, and then you have the job of being there and making the, the project. And then when it opens, you have to do the publicity campaign, the marketing campaign, the advertising campaign. And then after that, if it's a high-class project, you have to do the awards campaign. Right. which is a separate campaign and very complicated too. Yeah. Then you have to make sure that people go see it and it runs. So like if it's a Broadway show, you want it to run 
like Wicked for many, many, many years. Right. Uh, if you uh, are doing a movie, you have to have a big opening weekend and then make sure that it stays in the theaters as long as you possibly can keep it in the theaters. If it's TV, you're on for a special, like the live shows we do, we're on for one night. It's one live show and then that's right. it. If you have a series, like a Broadway show, you want it to run 10 years. Right. So, I mean, th that's why th there's no way to possibly explain what a producer does because it's very specific to the kind of thing you're producing. Well, it's very rare for a producer to be able to do all three of what you just said. Very rare to have the kind of success that you've had in Broadway, theater, uh, TV, and film. Um, oh, I, I'm saying that as a Yeah, a generally, generally speaking... <laughs> I think that it comes for me, it comes from boredom. Yeah. Like, um, I, it sounds, that sounds like a very uh, simplistic explanation. But like, when I do a movie, I then don't want to do another movie right away. Right. I want to do a Broadway show. Right. Because it's different. Or I want to do a TV series. Or I want to do a live musical on right. NBC. Or, so I, I like switching and going from thing to thing to thing to thing. Because it keeps me energized, it keeps me interested, it keeps my imagination going, and I'm learning. I'm always learning. Once you stop learning, and you can do it by rote, hmm. uh, then you start to falter. Yeah. You start to just do it in your sleep, and then I don't think it, it creates the best environment for turning out something you know, exciting and unique and different. Yeah. There, there are people that I idolize. Yeah. Um, like Scott Rudin. Mm -hmm. Scott Rudin is brilliant. Yes. He does theater and television sure. and movies and all of that. And he has impeccable taste. Right. So all of this stuff is classy. And I, I go to see it and I, I expect a magnitude of quality. Yes. That, and then there are other producers that care about getting something made and they don't care if it's good or not. Right. They just want to get it made. Yeah. So, so I feel like Scott is, is sort of the ultimate example of a producer that I have great admiration for. Uh, the other person that I admire is Mark Platt. Oh, yeah. Mark Platt, um, I would say that I'm insulting a whole lot of people by saying this, but Mark Platt and the work we do are, I think, the two camps of people who have understood the musical form mm -hmm. in theater, movies, and television, you know? Um, so that when I see that there's a, a musical that's being done by Mark Platt, I relax. Hmm. I can sit back and go, on TV, it's going to be great. In, in movies, it's going to be great. He's about to make the movie of Wicked, right. where he did the stage show of Wicked. Um, we collaborated for the first time on Jesus Christ Superstar uh, because Mark had been involved in the possibility of doing a movie of Jesus Christ Superstar. And, you know, Universal said to us, well, he's involved in the movie. Why don't you see if you can team up and do it together? And we jumped at the chance because we, from the outside, you would say we're competitors. But from the inside, we're like, the two groups that do movie musicals right. and how, how much fun and joy is that 
to put our heads together and do it together. Right. And it was really thrilling and fun and exciting and extremely and, successful. And, and, and successful. Yeah. And, um, you know, we, we found it to be a, a great collaboration. And, and what you realize is that in other forms of entertainment, you're competing. Yeah. When you're doing musicals, you're not competing. Hmm. You are praying that the competition is yeah. successful because the musical form is so delicate mm -hmm. that if you have one too many flops in the musical art form, um, they won't make them anymore. Right. They won't put so, the risk in. No. So, you know, when Mark was doing, you know, the musical of the, the movie musical of into the woods mm -hmm. where they're, saying, please be a hit. Yeah. And people go, well, why are you rooting for that movie? It's not your movie. But if Into the Woods failed, it would hurt the chances of us doing another movie right. musical. So you're, besides the fact that we admire him and he's talented and he's a great guy and we, right. we like him, besides all of that personal stuff, mm -hmm. which is true, um, we need him to be successful in the same way as he needed us to be successful with Chicago right. and Hairspray. Yeah. And if we weren't, he probably wouldn't be, you know, doing Mary Poppins Returns right, right now. In, in Hollywood, you need to see green lights. You need, want your projects greenlit, as they say. Yep. And if somebody has uh, something, a, a bomb or something doesn't go well, then everyone's lights turn red mm -hmm. and their projects stop. And mm -hmm. it's all about risk. I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense, but you're right it's it's a very it's not the same way like on tv and 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 in most movies because everyone's going to keep making movies but the the amount of money and effort that it takes to make a musical and make it right it, it is so much that studios would just if you produce away. if you produce a cop show and it fails there's always going to be another cop show. right right and after that there's another cop show right. and another cop show mm -hmm. musicals they blame the genre yeah in in terms of learning, a lot of times we talk about uh, actors going to school for acting. Is there a certain kind of education that you would recommend if people want to become a producer? Is there uh, you know a, a path in the academic world uh, to go through, or is it just? I I don't think there is because yeah. I think that. Everybody comes at it from a different place. Yeah. I came at it from, um, after college, I was a journalist. And um, I was using journalism to find my way. I didn't really know for sure what I wanted to do. So uh, I was a journalist until I figured out I wanted to be a producer. And once I knew I wanted to be a producer, I stopped being a journalist. And... You know, so uh, I not a lot of people come from journalism to be a producer. Uh, you know, John Peters, the you know the famous John Peters, right. way back when became uh, a producer by being the the most famous hairdresser in Beverly Hills. <laughs> and, really, and it's true. Wow. I mean, he if you said you know what did he accomplish? He had the most famous hair salon in Beverly Hills. And he made a fortune as a hairdresser. Wow. And then from there, he became a big producer. <laughs> so, I mean, everybody has their own story. Yeah. And everyone has their own experiences. Um, so there's really no rhyme or reason to how you became a producer. Right. 
Um, and as long as you sort of end up in the same place. Yeah. Do you feel like on your path to becoming a producer, actors have to deal with rejection all the time? Obviously, there's disappointment in, in the business f- for everyone. How do you deal with that kind of uh, issue, like rejection and disappointment when some, you worked on something and it falls apart? Or, you know, as, as you said, like when you're under the microscope for the Oscars, how do you deal with that kind of uh, pressure? Or I think it's probably not fair to compare the producing to an actor's life. Yeah. Because I think that's the ultimate form of rejection. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, who am I to even compare the kind of rejection that actors go through. Right. I mean, you see it first, firsthand. And yes. Like, yeah. Yes. But that said, I, every day I'm rejected. Yeah. Every day of my life. Yeah. Every day I call an agent and ask about a client and they say, no, not interested. I call, you know, a writer and no, I don't want to write that. I right. call a studio and they say, it's not our thing. We don't want to finance that or call a network. Or So I feel rejection every single day. And I didn't learn how to cope with rejection because as I started this by saying I had a shrink that had narcolepsy and fell asleep when I was telling them my problems. Right. So nobody nobody was sympathetic to my rejection. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's sort of um, difficult. I mean, you know, I, I think that the, the extreme case or one of the extreme cases is we, we produced Chicago, the movie. We won the Oscar. It was a great moment in our lives. Right after that, we went to see a preview of a Broadway show hmm. called Hairspray. <laughs> we loved it and said, that's next. We want to do that next. And we got in touch with Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman, who wrote it. And um, we went to New Line Cinema because we had heard they were going to make a movie of it. And we went in for meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting. And we're going like, when are you going to make a decision? I mean... Right. I thought to myself, well, maybe if I was the studio and I was interviewing a producer who just won the Oscar for Best mu- for uh, best Picture, and it was a musical, and it was the first time in 36 years right. that a musical, Oliver, had been the, er- right. the earlier musical that won. You reignited the genre well, with, with Chicago. You did. But I'm not allowed to say that, so you can say that. <laughs> no, because otherwise I say, how dare you say no, that? No, you did. But, but you did. I, the thing is that um, I feel that that's the truth, but they weren't hiring us. They were. Mm. We went back and who would you choose for this part and who would you choose for that part? And, you know, how much money is this going to cost and how much money is that going to cost? And where would you shoot it? And what does it look like? And what's the color palette? Right. And, uh, you know, who would you get to design it? And. And, you know, the agency that uh, we had at the time was um, CAA, and they got really mad. And they said, you're not going back. You know, it's insulting to you. You know, how dare they, if you just did Chicago, how dare they treat you like this? And I said, no, I'll go back every day of my life until I get the job or somebody else gets it. I said, but I want this job, not because I needed the job, thank God. But I wanted to do that movie. I loved that, that piece. Yeah. I loved the show. And I had in my head a clear vision of how to make the movie of Hairspray. Yeah. I, I just I knew how to make it. And luckily, I was right. Around the same time, 
Harvey Weinstein had offered Neil Merrin and I the movie of Rent. And we turned it down three separate occasions. Wow. And you say, well, you know, I mean, Harvey came to us and said, what are you, crazy? Hmm. I'm offering you Rent. And everybody wants to produce Rent. Right. And we said, I, I don't really know how to make Rent as a movie. I'm not sure. That doesn't say that I don't go to see it on Broadway a million times and love it. And right. I'm passionate about it. I just, I'm being honest. I don't know how to make it into a movie, especially because um, at the time they wanted to use the original cast. Mm-hmm. And the original cast, we thought, as wildly talented as they were, right? wildly talented, they were now like 10 to 15 years older than the character should be. Right. And, you know, like it, it, it really, really created a situation for us when we did Hairspray, the movie. You'll notice that all the kids in the Corny Collins show are really young. They're kids. They're kids. Yeah. And they're the right age yes. for the kids Absolutely. in the Corny Collins show. Absolutely. And that is as a result of being very strict because of rent. Right. Because we felt like, you know, no matter how talented those people are or, you know, at the time... Um, I I just don't believe that they're the characters. Right. They're they're you know if you can't pay your rent and you're that age, there's something wrong. <laughs> something else is something going something else on. is going on, <laughs> and it has nothing to do with the story. Right. It's right. like uh, it has nothing to do with you know being gifted, and 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 the same goes with anything. You know, casting is all about you know trying to f- match the characters. Right. With the actors. I agree with you 100% until they make the movie of the Book of Mormon. And then when I'm yes, in my 40s, of course, I will be playing a 19-year-old. <laughs> no, but you know that Ethel Merman is going to be playing your part. <laughs> yes, exactly. But I agree with you. If you're going to do something and you're going to do it in a new way in a movie, it can't just be trying to recreate something that already happened. That's the... that's. You, you talked about getting bored and wanting to go back and forth between... TV, movie, and and theater. And that's kind of what it is for me, too. I've certainly done a lot more theater than I have TV and film. But one of the things that drives me crazy about theater is that I performed the Book of Mormon 800 times. I did Hamilton 662 wow. times. Wow. I It's gone. There is yeah. no record of that. You know, there's a cast recording, yes, but it doesn't exist somewhere. And I did... One day on Dreamgirls, the movie, uh, for 45 seconds, and that will live forever. Well, you bring up a very interesting point because uh, more than people ask me, what does a producer do? Yeah. People ask me, how is it possible that a show opens and there's no record of it? Yeah. And I don't know, you know, I I should understand it. I should be able to say, let me explain it to you. Mm -hmm. But I do understand it from a business point of view. But I can't explain it to you from an emotional point of view. Right. I think it's criminal that every show, if they film every show, and why is it sitting at the Lincoln Center Library locked right. in a vault that no, and no one can see it? Yeah. And I don't, I don't understand, you know, people listening to this are going to go, well, then you don't know the business. I do know. I do, <laughs> well, if someone I, says I, that well, to you. No, but I don't. mean... I do know the business and I do know the answer to it, but I don't understand it because you can change the business. You can change anything. And I don't understand why no one in the unions and the guilds and everything have not gotten together 
and figured out how to make it work so that even if you said when the show closes on Broadway, um, you can release it on DVD or you can release it on streaming or, you know, the Broadway channel or yeah. something or other can, can uh, broadcast it. Right. Um, so I, I don't get it, which is one of the uh, reasons we wanted to do musicals on television. Yes. Because we wanted to bring theater into people's homes and you can't get that on Broadway because right. they don't allow you to. No. No, I mean, I, you know I'm a huge, huge fan and think what you and Neil have done in bringing musicals to, to TV hasn't just uh, been such a, a great service to Broadway. I think that you created a new medium a new art form of what we do. And I don't think, I think that people are starting to finally realize how complicated it is. You have people in the TV world who don't realize how difficult it is to put together an entire Broadway show so quickly, have a cast work so well together. And then you have people on Broadway who do not understand the camera work, the sound, the, the TV side of it. Both of these things are absolutely impossible to do, and you have been doing it for well, years now. Well, it's, it's really um, – what's discouraging about it is um, I know actors mm -hmm. who have trashed us mm -hmm. for not liking our live shows, uh -huh. and I think that's okay mm -hmm. uh, because if you don't like what we're doing – there's no reason that you have to like what we're doing. If you would rather not see them on TV, that's fine. But at the same time, then a, a month later, don't have your agent call oh, and say, yeah. my client's dying to do your next live musical. And this is true. This is happening all the time. The very people who have been outspoken about mm -hmm. what terrible producers we are, mm -hmm. um, then come in and ask uh, like, for the job for the next live musical. Oh, yeah. So th that's kind of discouraging. Um, the, the epitome of this is the Oscars because right. on the Oscars, um, you, the good news is the fun part is you work with every living, sometimes not, not living mm -hmm. actor who, yeah. uh, who can, can walk across the stage and sometimes not walk across the stage. Right. Um, because in the three years that we did it, if you look at the list of actors we had who presented, who performed, who was part of the show, um, there's almost no one that you could mention that we didn't work with. Right. And, um, you know, so we, we sort of learned how actors work. Um, but ultimately, if you were to say, how do you know what you know? assuming that that's a good thing. Right. I would say I don't give 99% of the credit. I give 100% of the credit to my mentor, Joe Papp. Right. Because um, he invited Neil and I to go to the public and to work there for several years for him. Hmm. And we were in charge of theater projects at the public theater. For what years was it that you started there? I think it was like 78, 79. No, it's earlier than that. It was 77, 78, right. 79. But like three years. The thick of it. Yes. yes. Just like, I mean, it's, it's amazing to me. When you told me some of that story, some of your stories from there, to me, that explains so much of what you guys have done going forward. 
because you were in the epicenter of what was happening in theater at that time and storytelling. So what did you take away from your time at the public? With Joe? Well, you know, I, I got to learn so much. I got to learn, you know, Joe said, you don't, you don't treat actors like this. You treat actors like this and you mm-hmm. never speak to an actor like this. And you, it's all about respect and it's always about patience and all of that same goes for writers. He was very like, you know, you don't get short tempered with a writer. You give them the chance to write and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite until they get it right. right. Um, same thing with directors. He was less patient with directors because hmm. I think he was a frustrated director himself. And um, he didn't have a lot of patience with directors, but he was very, very patient with uh, actors and with writers and was uh, generous and kind and, and, and went overboard in teaching us how to behave and how to treat people. And what we got to do uh, on, on a nightly or daily basis was, you know, I remember we were working with David Mamet and who was brand new at the time. Nobody really knew who he wow. was. And um, we had a play playing in the public theater and we would do a preview of the play. And at the end of the play, all of us went back to Joe's office and it was 11 o'clock midnight and we'd be there till like three in the morning. And we'd be saying to David Mamet, what if you move this scene to here and move this around there? Or what happens if you threw out that scene and did the scene with the mother instead of with the father? Right. Don't you think that what you're lacking is this and, and what you could use is that? And David Mamet would either say, that's a terrible idea. I'm not going to do that. Or he'd say, I never thought of that. That's a great idea. Then the next day, he'd wake up and write that scene. And the next night, we'd be back in the theater at the public and we'd watch the play with the new scene. Wow. And it would, let's say it didn't work or it worked. If it worked, then that was that. Now you can say it was the same thing that they do always on Broadway or off Broadway. You can say the process is exactly the same. But there was something that was different about it because Joe would, would keep an atmosphere of, don't tell me it's going to make a lot of money. Don't tell me it's going to be a hit. Tell me that you can't sleep at night. Tell me that you're going to leave this meeting at three in the morning, go home, and you won't be able to sleep. Yeah. If you tell me with that passion, then we're going to try that. So although the process is, is the same as everybody goes through on Broadway and off-Broadway, and it's not special for the public theater, it was special with Joe because you felt like you were in a lab. Right. And the rules were different mm-hmm. because he wanted to do great work and he did not, you know, yes, as a bonus, wouldn't it be great if you do a show called Chorus Line mm-hmm. and Chorus Line makes millions of dollars and that pays for the next zillion productions at the public theater. Right. So it isn't that Or he, free Shakespeare in the park. Or free the, Shakespeare yeah. in the park. Yeah. So it wasn't like he was looking uh, to have a failure. He was right. looking to have a hit. But his first concern was that the work be good. The same way as it feels like he sort of invented colorblind casting. Hmm. You know, because at the time when he would say, we're going to cast a black actor in that role or a Latino actor or whatever. You know, if you were doing that on Broadway at that time, uh, people would say, 
wait a minute, you know, a black actor can't play that role. Right. Or a Latino actor can't play that role. Or it's a man's male role. It's not a female role. You can't cast a woman in that role. Right. And yet he did it. And through sheer force of will, he made the audience accept it and then get used to it. He wore them down to where I I think he's the father of colorblind casting. And um, we finally got to show what we learned from him when we did Rodgers and Hammerstein Cinderella on TV. Right. Because we had Whitney Houston and Brandy. Yeah. She was the first African-American Cinderella. Hmm. And Whitney was the fairy godmother. And the queen was Whoopi Goldberg, but the king was Victor Garber. Right. And Paolo Montalban uh, was the son. And you go, wait a minute. (laughs) How does this make sense? And yet we put it out there and we didn't question it. And then the audience didn't question it. Right. You know, uh, the same way as when we did Annie with Kathy Bates on, right. on TV. Same thing happened. We cast Audrey McDonald mm-hmm. as Grace. Yeah. And wait a minute. Daddy Warbucks during the Great Depression was going to have a, a, a secretary right, right. who's African-American. And then at the end, they're going to get fall married. Love, yeah. They're going to fall in love and get married. Yeah. How could that happen? Right. And yet... From Joe, we learned that that can happen, and right. that's the way it's going to be. And we we took the risks we took in our career based on the risk-taking that we learned from Joe. Wow. So I would say that if, if, if Neil and I did anything good, it's because of Joe. If we hadn't been with Joe for those three or four years, I don't think we would have been the producers we became. Right. I think that if, if we were good if we were special as producers, it's because of what we learned from him. It's incredible. I mean, it's an incredible place to start from. Um, You then though did like footloose and got into the TV film world. A lot of time to talk about New York versus LA, just the basic geography. Did you move to Los Angeles to start doing TV film? What was that decision? Well, after a certain amount of time uh, being at the public, and I, I, by the way, at the time, I wanted to devote my whole life to the theater. I didn't want to go to L.A. I didn't want to be in television or movies. Hmm. But what started to happen to me was I'd be doing these plays, and there would be these really tiny theaters at the public. And you'd work so hard, and the actors would work so hard. And it wasn't about making money or not making money. It was about... I developed this hunger to have more people see the work. Right. And, you know, if you compare, I went from having, uh, doing the water engine with David Mamet at the public and having a very tiny, tiny, tiny audience, but the work was superb. It was great. But then I moved to LA and I did Cinderella and we had 60 million viewers. So you went from having... (laughs) a tiny audience yeah. to 60 million. And that started to feel like, okay, we can reach more people. The same way as the Oscars, you know, you realize that worldwide, they're in 225 uh, countries and territories. And the audience is almost a billion viewers. So in one night, a billion people watch the Oscars <laughs> worldwide. A little more 
than the small theater at the public. Yeah. You are used to working with legends, with, with some of the most famous people in the world. What is it like to do that? And is it, is it, has it, was it intimidating in the beginning? Have you gotten over that? Are you able to just see them as people? What is it like? Because you're, uh, you're walking amongst those folks yeah. all the time. I would say there was one person who was intimidating. The rest I got used to very quickly. Not because they weren't special, but I, I adapted quickly right. to working with people. You have to. You have to. You can't, you can't be a fan. Yeah. Because you can't accomplish anything. Right. But, you know, I grew up as a kid who grew up in Brooklyn. And, um, you know, and, and I was this little kid that uh, grew up on Funny Girl, you know. And uh, to become, I, I thought one day I want to meet Barbara Streisand. And to not only meet her, but to become friends with her. I mean, real friends. Yeah. And to work with her, because we've done a lot of things together. And the very first thing we did on the Oscars was we called her. And we asked her to perform uh, and sing the way we were for the In Memoriam sequence. Because Marvin Hamlish had died that year. And... It was so emotional for us all to be together because uh, we were doing the Oscars for the first time and she hadn't performed on the Oscars in like a million years. And she was very nervous and we were very nervous and not about her, but yeah. about the whole thing. So we, we've gone through a lot of, of things together. And, um, you know, if you believe in, in anything like blessings or miracles, uh, spirituality, um, meeting her, becoming friends with her, getting to know her, and, and really seeing how brilliant she is as a, a human, generous and kind, and, and what she's done for the gay community that oh, yeah. people don't even know about. I mean, yeah. you, the money she's donated, the things she's, the strings she's pulled to take care of the gay community in ways that no one will ever hear about, yeah. because she's not out to get publicity about it. Yeah. Um, she is extraordinary and I adore her and um, I'm so lucky to have ended up being part of her life. Yeah. You know, let's talk about more about when you decided to make the live musical and go back to like, you know, I know we talked about the, you know, how much pressure there was or how many people were critical of it, which drives me absolutely insane. I'm not just saying that to you. You can ask Will Swenson, <laughs> we were in Little Miss Sunshine when you guys were doing Sound of Music, and Audra, his wife, was was in the show and was you know glorious, just absolutely glorious, getting to hear her sing "Climb Every Mountain," and I was livid that everyone in our community wasn't jumping up and down for joy at every turn for you guys. And I, I, I don't know how much, you know, like you felt that obviously, you know, people, <laughs> yeah. you know, people, because you were, you were taking a, you know, quote unquote, uh, holy book, uh, from, from our, our canon of musical theater and putting it on live TV. Well, it, it was different in, in our minds because we weren't remaking the movie. Right. We like, if somebody said remake the movie of sound and music, we go, you're out of your mind. Right. We, but the, the play 
the stage show of Sound of Music is very rarely done. Yeah. And it's not revered the way the movie is. Right. So we thought people don't, and the songs are in different order sometimes, mm-hmm. and and there are all these differences in the stage show that were changed for the movie. Right. And we're not competing with Julie Andrews because Julie Andrews was the movie, and yeah. we're not doing the movie. Yes. So it was it was a very difficult experience in that um, where where it came from was this: um, we first had the idea of doing. Uh, musicals on TV. And the first one we did was Gypsy with Bette Midler. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were really excited about that. Everyone in town thought it was going to be a big bomb. (laughs) And nobody gave it any hope at all. Everyone thought it was going to be a disaster. It got a lot of awards. It it got great reviews. And Bette Midler got maybe, you know, some of the best reviews of her career. And, uh, I remember, you know, Bet had told us that she uh, never reads the New York Times because they're always so critical of her. Hmm. And she said that she was on tour uh, when the movie was about to be aired and she was doing a concert tour. And she said she was in her hotel room and somebody left the New York Times there. And she realized that that would have the review of Gypsy. Hmm. And she said she picked it up and threw it across the room. And she said she walked around the whole day in the hotel room, walking past the New York Times that was crunched up in the corner of the hotel room. And she finally said, the hell with it. And she opened it up and read it. And uh, she said she burst into tears because she finally got a great review in the New York Times. And uh, she was so happy and and proud of it. Um, So we, we, we started with Gypsy. And if it wasn't for Bet maybe none of this other stuff would have happened. Hmm. So we give her a lot of credit for taking the chance. Right. Then that was on CBS. And then we moved over to ABC and they were reviving the wonderful world of Disney. Right. And they said, do you have anything for us that we can restart the franchise? And we said, we have an idea about doing another musical, which was Cinderella. Right. And um, they thought, wow, you know, Whitney Houston and Brandy. Uh, but the very thing that attracted us to it was to have the first black Cinderella. Mm-hmm. And the very thing that attracted to us was to do the Joe Papp thing uh, and have multicultural casting. Right. And they were very nervous about it. Mm-hmm. It concerned them that it might confuse the audience. Right. Like kids watching it, young children watching it. You know, and they're seeing um, they're seeing a black queen and a white king and a Filipino son, right. and then the stepmother is Bernadette Peters and she's right, white, right. and one of the stepsisters is white, and another one is black, and it's it's sort of they said it's going to confuse the kids. Isn't it funny like, though? Like the things that they think confuse kids, like the animated movie has talking rats, right? So- <laughs> So right. kids pretty much accept a right. lot in right. storytelling. So kids will have no problem with that whatsoever. It's really adults. No. And, and the thing is that we said, look, if you don't want to do it this way, because they came back to us and said, instead of Brandy, what about Jewel to play Cinderella? Oh, my God. I said, but Jewel is white. And they said, yeah. <laughs> and we said, no, we want to do this. Yeah. And this is the, why we're doing it. Yeah. And if you don't want to do that, we don't want to do it. Hmm. And they, 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 you could just see they weren't adamant. Right. 
but they were nervous. Sure. And um, we finally got them to do it and to do it our way and the way we wanted it done. And I think the reason that it, it got 60 million viewers at the time, it was the biggest rating ever for a television movie. My God. And the reason for that was because African-Americans watched it, Latinos watched it, mm-hmm. Asians watched it, uh, you know, Caucasians watched it. I mean, every, everybody watched yeah. it because they were all represented in key roles. There was an entry point for everyone. For everyone. So the very thing that they were most afraid of were the things that attracted the large audience to right. it. So, well, and you uh, also had two singers, you know, two very famous, beautiful vocalists who were singing this Rodgers and oh. Hammerstein music, you know, bringing it to a, a modern audience, which was yes, great. and and you you had basically uh, Brandy at the height of her career mm-hmm. and Whitney at the height of her career, so you had su- two recording artist superstars who you know had never done anything like this, you know, Brandy didn't know what it was, right? Brandy kept saying, "Is this opera?" Right. And we said. No, Rodgers and Hammerstein is not opera. It's musical theater. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah. But it was it was adorable because it was naive about she never even knew what musical theater was. I don't think she had ever seen a Broadway show at that point. Wow. So um, it was a, a very difficult production mm-hmm. because um, we became very, very, very close friends with Whitney. Mm. But we had to live through the drug stuff and um she would show up on the set four hours late wow and uh we started scheduling around that so we would we give her a schedule that started four hours later Wow! so when she was four hours late she came on time this is one (laughs) of those hats that you as a producer yes this is is yeah you figure out how do I not lose four hours of shooting time? Yeah, which is huge. I'm working oh. on a TV show right now, and I think if I'm a minute late, how that could set back hundreds of people Absolutely. on their day. But four hours late oh every day. And, and the thing is that, but it's, it was funny because, uh, well, not so funny, but, you know, when, when she would come four hours late and she'd be exactly on time. <laughs> Um, we thought, okay, well, this is this is what you need to do right. to figure this out. Right. Um, but she was a kind person. She mm-hmm. was a wonderful person. She had such a big heart. She was so sweet, so talented, insanely talented. And um, in fact, I had a meeting with her uh, a couple of months before she passed away. Wow. Um, and I was in... Atlanta, and we were doing the new version of Footloose, the second Footloose movie. Oh, right, right. Uh, and she heard I was there, and she said, I haven't seen you in a long time. Do you want to come to the house? And I went to her house, and I spent the whole day with her. Wow. And she said, has everyone forgotten me? <laughs> Is, like, does anyone care about me anymore? Um, do people want to see me come back? And I just said, what are you talking about? We love you. Everybody loves you. They want you to recover from this drug addiction and they want you to come back. And she sort of was weeping and crying and it was heartbreaking. And she said, well, this time I think I'm going to be able to do it. And about three months later, she died of the overdose. 
So it was it was very, very rough. But I think that of all the stuff she did in her career, she was most proud of Cinderella because she was a producer with us. Mm-hmm. And she said, I'm doing this for the children. Yeah. I'm doing this for the kids. Yeah. I'm bringing them the first African-American Cinderella. Yeah. And she really believed in it and, and it meant a lot to her. And um, it was it was an exciting, thrilling experience. Yeah. But going back to the other section that we were talking about, the live shows. Yeah. So this is this is how it transpired. First, we wanted to do the uh, TV movie musical. Mm-hmm. So we did that. Yeah. Then we decided it was time to go to the big screen. So we did Chicago and, and Hairspray. Then after Got doing an Oscar. It, then moving on to the next. <laughs> then after doing that. We, Neil and I sat down and, by the way, when I'm saying this stuff, I, I don't want to be redundant, so I'm not saying Neil and I, Neil and I, Neil and I. Yeah, Neil yeah, I. no. You, but it's, but Neil course. and I have been working together for a long time, yeah. and, and Neil is brilliant, and yeah. Neil comes up with a lot of the ideas that we do, and he, he's the best at casting. He comes up with unique ideas and yeah. casts actors that are so exciting and he's so good working with writers, and he's really good at what he does. And I'm lucky to be partners with him, yeah. um, business partners. It's it's a unique thing to have such a, a great yeah. working relationship for so Absolutely. long. Absolutely. And um, so Neil said one day he came, you know, he said, you know, we've been talking about what to do next, and we have been sort of stymied because we don't want to go back and do what we've done. We we need to do something different. He said, let's remember that 50 years ago, they did live musicals on the networks. Why can't we do that? Right. And I said, oh, uh, I don't know. So we checked in with Ted Shapin at the Rodgers and Hammerstein organization, and we explained the idea that we were talking about. And he said, if you want to start with, you know, Sound of Music, I will give you the rights to do Sound of Music. So we were just finishing up two seasons of Smash, which is a whole other oh, story. God, we haven't even talked, we haven't even about, talked it. about that. We were finishing up two seasons of Smash, yeah. and Smash was over, and Bob Greenblatt, who is really our savior, because everything that we've been doing in the last number of years has been because of Bob, right. because Bob loves the theater more than anybody, mm-hmm. and he uh, was responsible for Smash, and... He said, look, Smash is going away, but if you can think of anything that you can bring me to replace Smash, not a weekly series, but something that's noisy, that gets a lot of publicity, but good publicity that gets um, people watching, that's not on television, that you can't see anywhere else and all that. If you can think of something, call me. And we said, we don't have to call you. And he said, oh, why? Hmm. And we said, we've been thinking about something for you. And we presented the idea of doing the live musicals and that we already spoken to Rogers and Hammerstein organization, and they said yes to Sound of Music. And he, he didn't pause. He didn't take a beat. He didn't say, how much is it going to cost? He didn't say, well, let me see whether it makes sense for us. He said, when can you start? Hmm. And we said, well, I don't know. Do you want to think about it? No, I don't want to think about it. Let's do it. So we started putting together Sound of Music. 
And we had no idea who was going to work. We had no idea if anyone was going to watch it. We just had no idea. And we started doing it and, and making it up as we went along. Because the people who did the original 50 years ago were all gone. So there's nobody around today who even knew how to do a live musical right. on television. So we just made up the rules and we made up a, a plan of how we were going to do it and then just did it. Right. And um, what we found was that nobody would play Maria. No one would take on the challenge. No one. Because they said, you know, we're not going to be compared to Julie Andrews right. in the movie. We're not going to do this live. That's scary. You know? It's scary as hell. Well, As someone who's like performed live in front of audiences, I, I remember when it was announced just thinking, how are they going to do this? And it's so funny now that I've seen you do it so many times. You're like, oh, yeah, you just you just do it. Right. But you, I remember so specifically thinking, this is impossible. So I can only imagine if you're going to be the lead in that show, just feeling the weight of that. But you found... Well, I mean, the thing is, we, we went to, you know, people said, well, why didn't you go to a theater person? You know, we went to everybody and everyone said, if you want to film it right, and then auto-tune it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, or, you know, like, I don't want to be exposed. Right. Because on live television, if I hit a bad note and, and it's going to be there forever and ever and ever. Yeah. And we said, no, it's live and there's no safety net. Right. And somebody said Carrie Underwood was curious about it and wanted to talk about it. And we talked to her about it and she said, yeah, let's do it. I, you know, I perform live every night yeah. and I'm not scared of it. Let's, no. let's do it. And we went, really? Live every night and everyone is allowed to videotape her. Yeah, audience. that's right. It's not like Broadway. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And it's on YouTube. Yeah. So we came back from the meeting and we said to Bob Greenblatt, Carrie Underwood wants to do it. And if it wasn't for her saying she wanted to do it, we probably would have not had yeah. the production. Mm -hmm. We probably would have never done a live musical and the rest would have been dead and buried in, in, in the, in the idea stage. It I, never I mean, I, I've, I give credit for so many jobs and musicals being put into the homes of young kids all across the country as a kid who grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. I give that credit to you, Neil, and, and Carrie Underwood, because she saying yes, green, that was the green light. That was the green light. That was the green light for all of these because you had so much pressure, but then you, you do the show and the ratings come out. Well, we, you know, we got up the next morning <laughs> and we looked at the ratings and, you know, Bob called and said, I'll give you the ratings, but I, can, I need to call you back because we have to double check them because they're wrong. Really? Yeah. Because <laughs> we said, well, what are they? Are they bad? He said, no, they're not bad. They're like ridiculous. They're 22 million viewers. And we went, 22 million viewers? What are you kidding? Yeah. And he said, no, that's why we got to recheck them. So they rechecked them and rechecked them and rechecked them. And it was 22 million viewers. And it was astonishing. And what happened in town anecdotally I found all this out is that at ABC and at Fox and at uh, CBS and all the other networks had meetings that day hmm. 
They canceled their other meetings and they had meetings that day. And again, this was told to me anecdotally, so yeah. I can't verify it, but this is what was told to me. Uh, and they said, what happened last night? The landscape changed. Yeah. And we, they, they were going like, what does this mean to us? We, we have to like look at this and see how it affects us. And uh, the, the very next person that jumped on it was Mark Platt. And he did Grease with the Fox Network. Right. And it was a, a big success. Now, I don't think anything will ever rival Sound of Music. Because, you know, I think the most ratings that you can get now are half that. Right. But at half that, it's enormous. Yeah, it's huge. Half still. that is like gigantic. But... That those numbers are crazy numbers. Yeah. And it just showed you that no one had seen in this generation a live musical. It was the sound of music. Right. And Carrie Underwood has a faithful following Absolutely. of country fans yeah. that came to it. So if we had done it with any other actor, I don't think it would have necessarily been successful. Right. And we may, may have not done another one. No. It would have been one and out. Right. But she launched it. Mm -hmm. And she made it successful and she made it desirable to do so that when Mark did it at Fox and he did Grease, it got great reviews and another network had picked up what we started yeah. and, and decided to go forward. I mean, Mark is now in production. He's going to do Rent right. on Fox Network. Right. Um, he, did, he just finished doing Christmas Story. Mm. Um, so, I mean... No, that's what it, I'm saying. You it, guys it, started it, an entire new medium. I'll fast forward to Jesus Christ Superstar. Jesus Christ Superstar. Recent. You know, Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice, who we had known for a long, long time, but never worked with them, really. We knew them. Uh, said that it's always been done wrong. <laughs> and Andrew and Tim said, this sounds preposterous, but since we wrote it, we've never seen the perfect production. Right. And we said, because it should be a concert, but not a concert. Yeah. I mean, people don't walk up to a mic and sing a song and then go sit down. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's staged like a theater piece, but it's not staged like a Broadway show. Right. And yet it's a concert, but it's not a concert. So it, it was the most innovative plan that we had so far. And um, it was so different. And in that case, you know, like the live audience was part of the excitement of it. Yeah. But, you know, people said, see, you made a mistake. Sound of Music should have been in front of a live audience. <laughs> and I said, you know, do you really want to see the Nazis coming in? And, and do you want to see something so dramatic and heavy yeah. as that? And, and to see audience members sitting around in their seats chewing gum? Right. I mean, like... It just didn't feel right for the sound of music. And it no. didn't, you know, and I'm glad we didn't have a live audience. I'm glad we did it on a set without, you know, audience tittering and laughing and joking and, and applauding and right. cheering and all that. Yeah. It didn't feel right. But it felt right, of course, for Jesus Christ Superstar. So um, we did, we followed uh, Sound of Music with... Uh, Peter Pan, mm -hmm. we realized that uh, very quickly into it, it was a mistake. Why so? And it was a mistake because for whatever reason, the country turned on that story 
Finding Neverland was was happening in the theater and it was not successful and people didn't want to see it mm. and it was not going well in the theater, mm. which of course we had nothing to do with Finding sure. Neverland. I'm quick to add that. Um, Warner Brothers had just done a movie called Pan where they spent right. $150 million on it. Mm. It bombed. It didn't make any money. It lost a lot of money. Right. So every incarnation of Peter Pan in the last couple of years has tanked. Right. So you have to say to yourself, for whatever the reason, nobody's interested in this story right now. Right. And we didn't know that. Yeah. And we made a mistake. And if we knew that, we wouldn't have done Peter Pan next. Right. And then after that, we did The Wiz. And The Wiz was thrilling. Yeah. Because the cast was astonishing. Astonishing. I mean, like... I look at that marquee of mm-hmm. all those African American stars, mm-hmm. and it was thrilling. And what was what was the Tin Man's name? Neo? Am I saying it? Well, I'm not very up on my pop. It's Neo. N E Y O. Right. That's what he calls him. I loved his performance. I did too. He was fantastic. I loved everything about about that one. But he made you cry. He made me cry. And I was just like, wow, he's, he's tapping into something way beyond what I thought I was going to watch tonight. Well, we had the same reaction. I remember the first day that uh, Queen Latifah showed up and we did that scene where he sang that, that song that yeah. breaks your heart. And he's standing there singing the song and Queen Latifah's sitting there weeping. And he finished the number and she came over to me and she said, what's up with Neo? I mean, yeah. what is this? I mean, yeah. he's a he's a pop star. Like, yeah. a, wh- why am I crying and weeping and, and all that? Who knew? Yeah, that he's this this actor. Yeah. Um. So we 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 had pretty remarkable cast, and the ratings were very good. They were very good. Right. Nothing will ever approach the twenty two million. Sure, but they were very very good. Uh, and then we did hairspray, and right. hairspray. We were able to have an audience. Mm-hmm. Because we had an audience for the Corny Collins show. Right, right, right. So organically, it made sense. An aspect sense. of a part of the story. Absolutely. Right. So it was a completely different style uh, of piece than the others were. And then Jesus Christ Superstar was a completely different style of the others. Totally. And um, we were talking about doing Bye Bye Birdie with uh, J-Lo. Right. And we're still having a conversation about it. But after Jesus Christ Superstar, we said, you know, we can't go and do a 50s musical right now. Right. We can't. Because right. we've just done something kind of groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. And Mark is going off and doing Rent, which makes perfect sense after Jesus Christ Superstar. Yeah. We need to do hair. Oh. And hair felt relevant all over again, unfortunately. Right. Because it's about protests and about standing up to authority and the government taking advantage of you. And if you start to analyze it, even though it's no longer 1967 or 68 um, and that we don't, we're not burning draft cards and all that, every element of hair relates to what we're going through today. So all of a sudden it feels modern. Right. And we're not updating it. It's going to take place in 1967. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we think people are going to relate to it and go, oh, my God. I mean, this is today yes. in America. So uh, we were really excited to 
take on that, and we're we're going to start that soon, and we're going to be on next spring on on NBC. And how <laughs> it's pretty amazing. I love I love that you're taking on the challenge of hair. I mean, it's one of the best musicals ever. It's I, I used to listen to my mom's record in my basement as a kid, and I I love that show so much. To get from doing Sound of Music and Peter Pan <laughs> uh-huh. to this point, you know, I, I know that people can be, oh, you know, you see, you should have done this, that. You, when you are creating something new, you have a, you have a path that you have to go down to get to where you are. You don't end, you don't start with the end result or the first thing. You guys are exploring a whole new way of doing musicals. Um, I will be uh, in trouble if we don't talk a little bit about Smash before we go. Because Smash has become such uh, an iconic and, you know, really like a cult hit that continues to be talked about all the time in, in our world. And I know it was not easy to, to get made and that, my God, talk about, talk about a, a challenge, original music on a weekly series right that's insane the things that you've bitten off to to accomplish is just remarkable to me um what are your takeaways of of that experience it's it's very interesting it's very interesting because the idea of smash came from steven spielberg right it was his idea right he took it to bob greenblatt who was head of showtime Hmm. They were going to do it. And then Bob left Showtime, went to NBC. Mm-hmm. When he went to NBC, he took it with him. Right. And it was the first show he greenlit at NBC. Uh, we got a call one day from Spielberg. And it was like, you know, they said, Stephen's on the phone. And it's like, it's not like. Steven's on the phone every day. Yeah, yeah. In fact, Steven's not on the phone ever. Right. And we got on the phone and he said, um, Hi, you know, I just met with Bob Greenblatt and we talked about something and, and Bob and I think that you guys are the ones to do it with us and blah, blah, blah. This is a Friday. He said, what are you doing Monday? And I thought to myself, who cares what I'm doing Monday? <laughs> I'm <laughs> doing whatever you tell me to it's do. It's canceled. <laughs> it's canceled. <laughs> yeah. You know? So I said, oh, we'll move things around, you know. And he said, can you come over to the office on Monday? So we said, sure. And it was, you know, DreamWorks and and his company. So we we went over on on Monday and he he explained to us that he had this idea and he wanted to do the creation of a Broadway musical and what goes on in in that world. And... um, the, the, the idea would be we'd put on a new musical each season and the first one, uh, it ended up not, we, the idea for the musical, the Marilyn Monroe thing mm-hmm. was Scott Whitman's. Ah. But, you know, in the room when we met with Stephen, he said, who do you want to write the score? We said, Mark and Scott. Right. And he said, great idea. And then, um, so he, he, he sort of came to conclusions with us in the room that sure. day. And then we started it, and I would say the pilot for Smash, I could say with great honesty, is maybe the best pilot I've ever seen in my life. It's beautiful. And the reason it was so good 
is because we were all involved. So Stephen was very hands-on. We had the DP of Jurassic Park. (laughs) (laughs) You know? We didn't have a television DP. We had, had, you know, a feature costume designer. Mm -hmm. We had... We had all these feature people that do Stevens movies. Right, was making a, a we're a making movie. A, a, a full scale movie musical, yeah. basically. And Mark and Scott wrote those amazing songs, and um, all of a sudden we were all hands on, and we're all part of it. And I would say that uh, it's the first time I've ever seen the critics go so crazy. Hmm. The critics said this is the most exciting new series ever. And so we got those reviews. We got the reaction. The first night we aired, the ratings were staggering. We got incredible ratings. And then it went downhill from there. Hmm. And it was because there were so many people involved as producers that there was a lack of focus of, um, you know, uh, of, of people to, to guide it under a, a laser beam of, right. of activity. Right. And as a result of having too many people involved, there were too many opinions, mm-hmm. and we got pulled in too many directions. Right. And as much as we tried to pull it back, the number of people, and, and they were all 10,000-pound gorillas. Yeah. I mean, they were all big people. Yeah. And as a result, um, it, it never regained its... Uh, its purpose mm-hmm. in the second season, uh, they changed showrunners mm-hmm. at NBC, right. and we started building up uh, another por- part of the story. And we did a more contemporary off-Broadway musical. Right, um, Pasek and Paul were involved, yeah, and, you know, and other people, um, and that was not the solution to mm-hmm. it. So, um. I feel egotistically, I, I can say that I wish that Neil and I were given the ability to have at least taken a couple of episodes and made them our own. Right, molded it a little bit more and not have so many cooks in the kitchen. Because we felt that if we could have an episode or two or three mm-hmm. that we were 100% in charge of, we could show the group what the show that they wanted to make was. But there were so many, again, big people involved. And it's not like it was one person's fault, shall we say. There were just too many people involved. Mm -hmm. And it got diluted. And um, as a result, we went to Bob at the end of the second season. And we said, um, Bob, you know, like, we we don't think you should bring it back. Hmm. We think you should cancel it. Because it's never going to be what we want. It's never going to be what Stephen wants. It's never going to be what you want or NBC wants. And it's it's now become something else which it shouldn't have become. Which has got to be so disheartening when it's, no matter what it is, it was a hell of a lot of work. Oh. I mean, every episode oh. must have just been... It was exhausting. Un- unreal amount. Just at the time of the second season, we also got our first shot at the Oscars. Yeah. So to produce the Oscars, we're doing the Oscars and we're doing Smash at the same time. It just got to the point where we just said, you know, like, 
let's let's admit defeat. Hmm. Let's admit that that we we didn't pull it off. We could have. We think mm-hmm. we we believe we could have, but we didn't. So let's just say save it for another time. Right. But the good news is that we took all of Mark and Scott's songs from the Marilyn musical. Right. And we create and it was called Bombshell. Oh yes. And we did a one night con- concert for the Actors Fund, uh-huh. and it was a huge success. Mm-hmm. And from that, we've evolved that into uh, a new musical and we're negotiating the the book writers right now That's and amazing. Mark and Scott are going to use the songs from Smash but also write new songs right and we're you know as soon as the deals are all closed yeah. we'll announce that we're going to do a new Broadway show that uses elements of Bombshell and uses elements of Smash that's amazing. And yet it's not Bombshell and it's not Smash. Right. But it's using pieces of them. Oh, I see. And it will be... So it's not Marilyn Monroe? No, because we didn't want to do Funny Girl. Uh, right, right, We right. didn't want to do, oh, let's tell the Marilyn story. Right. We wanted to tell another story that used the Marilyn story. Right. Uh, to tell the story that we wanted to tell. Ah. So it will be different from Smash. It will be different from Bombshell, but it will have... The best elements from both. That's great. And um, the music said, is just fantastic. The music is, is, is spectacular. Oh, yeah. I think it's Mark and Scott's, other than Hairspray. Yeah. I think it's their best score. I, I absolutely agree. I think that, I mean, and that's really saying something because they've created. Oh, their work, is, yeah. their work is brilliant. Yeah. Let Me brilliant. Be Your Star is, is oh. one of the most <laughs> catchy, oh. unbelievable anthem. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. And and the, and what's really telling, though, is that you still have so many fans of the show who are still talking about it. There aren't a more. lot of... Yeah, what's that? There are more. Oh, yeah. And, and the were. reason there are more is because it's not on the air, but people are streaming it. Yes. Because you can watch the whole show on NBC.com. Yeah. You can watch it on iTunes. Yeah. I mean, it exists to watch both seasons. Plus Hashtag the, Team Ivy. I'm, you know, right, I'm right, right exactly. Yeah. Plus, you have the fact that um, the DVD packages of the two seasons have sold like crazy. Yeah, no, it's, so it's it is going to live on forever. I know that it's it, it was such a difficult thing to go through, but I think it also is going to have been something that has inspired a lot of people to create musicals, to be in musicals, and to use music as a storytelling format and that's a huge deal i mean there's you know whether or not you say every episode was a success or or not it's certainly the musical numbers were a success absolutely absolutely but you know we we produced a show on broadway called promises promises with mm-hmm. sean hayes and right. Kristen chenoweth and there's a song that burt Backrock and how david wrote called knowing when to leave may be the hardest thing that anyone can learn hmm. And I believe that to be true. And we knew when to leave. Hmm. We knew it was time to leave. And that's why we went to Bob and said, we need to not do this anymore. Yeah. So I'm happy that we didn't do it anymore. And now we're going to bring it back as a Broadway show. Yeah. And hopefully the show will give the audience everything they wanted from Smash. Right. But better. Right. And more successfully. Right. No, I think that's so. fantastic. And 
Speaking of when to know when to leave, <laughs> um, I'm so grateful that oh. you have given me this time. I've uh, just I'm floored by the stories that you have and and your willingness to share them. And um, uh, you've got a lot. You've done a lot of wonderful things in this business that have inspired me. And I know so many other people. And once again, I'll say it to the kids out in the Midwest: you've brought musical theater into their homes. And that's the the art form that I've dedicated my life to in many ways. So I'm so grateful to you and Neil and, and uh, you know, for every uh, negative tweet, there are at least a hundred kids out there who now love musical theater and you're changing their lives. So, well, thank, thank you. you. I appreciate you saying that. And uh, it's always good to feel that there are people out there who are supporting our work um, and you have to just have a thick skin yeah. And you have to accept the fact that you're going to get torn down, but you're going to persist. Yeah. And I think we've done what we have been able to do persisting. And any advice that I can give anybody is don't be discouraged by the social media world. Hmm. Um, when we did uh, How to Succeed, Dan Radcliffe uh, started reading the tweets that were being written about his performance. Mm. And I thought Dan was fantastic. He was. He succeed. Yeah. And he was getting trashed in yeah. social media. And nothing made Dan depressed or sad or anything. And one day I went into his dressing room before the show, mm. and he looked like he had been hit by a truck. Yeah. And I said, what's the matter? He said, nothing. Yeah. And I said, no, what's the matter? And he said, I read all the tweets about Ugh. my performance. And I said... You have to swear. You'll never read them again. Yeah. Go and do your work yeah. as an actor. Yeah. Go and do your job because you're doing a superb job. Absolutely. But don't read about don't it. Read them. And, and it's different from, you know, finishing a movie and then reading the critiques or, or tweets about it because you don't have to continue That's to right. be in it. That's right. You can't do that when you're on a stage. If no. you read, you know, reviews or if you are reading things that people are saying on Twitter, it will affect your performance and it's it's just different it, you know it, it's i think it's probably for somebody who's coming from the film world you can read some negative stuff and you're like well i already did that it's you know it's right. done but right. it's alive when it's in the theater but right. i uh again i'm gonna ask i'm just gonna come back again and we're gonna have a million more stories um because you've got some well I, i'm sitting here thinking like i haven't told any stories oh yeah <laughs> I've told no stories. You've not told one. some of the best stories that have ever not, been told I on this podcast. I haven't told any Craig. because I'm just thinking about like all the stuff we didn't cover. I, I we'll, we'll have to do a part two. Well, we'll That's have to all do there a part is to two. If, yeah. the, if people are not really bored and, <laughs> and they don't develop narcolepsy like my yes, shrink. Yes, everyone but your, but everyone your shrink. My shrink. Yes, is, exactly. Is totally entertaining. But it's been a pleasure doing this and thank you for asking. Thank you for having me. Audition side job, swimming upstream. Believe it or not, you're living the dream. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work 
or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R E R I S E T H E A T R E dot org, because only together we rise. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.